Testing, one, two, three. Testing, one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon. On the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, General Conference Postmortem, the April 2022 edition. Well, General Conference for April 2022 is now in the can, and now it's my time to look at what was said by the leaders and officers of the church in the different sessions and make commentary as I think appropriate. This is something that I have meant to do many times in the past. Sometimes I've gotten around to it, other times I have not. But now that I'm trying to focus more of my time on the podcast, I wanted to make a special effort to go over the different talks in each session of General Conference. The Saturday morning lineup was pretty impressive. It started off with none other than President Russell M. Nelson giving the introductory comments and welcome to the audience. By the way, is it just me, or does President Russell M. Nelson seem to talk more often in General Conference than any other past president, at least to my recollection? It seems he has a lot to say, and he wants a lot of opportunities to say it. And in his very first address to the audience on Saturday morning, President Nelson talks about preaching the gospel of peace. At least that's the name of his talk. He recognizes the war in Ukraine that is going on, though I don't think he actually mentions the word Ukraine. It's pretty obvious what he's talking about. And he also mentions the fact that he's aware that the global pandemic still affects our lives. But not to worry, President Nelson has a solution for both of those problems. And here's how he puts it. Play the tape. Since last conference, difficulties in the world have continued. The global pandemic still affects our lives. And now the world has been rocked by a conflict that is raining terror on millions of innocent men, women, and children. Prophets have foreseen our day when there would be wars and rumors of wars and when the whole earth would be in commotion. As followers of Jesus Christ, we plead with leaders of nations to find peaceful resolutions to their differences. We call upon people everywhere to pray for those in need, to do what they can to help the distressed, and to seek the Lord's help in any, in ending any major conflicts. It appears the only specific thing that President Nelson encourages the members to do to help with the major conflicts in the world is to pray for those in need and seek the Lord's help in ending any major conflicts. In other words, we should just pray about it. And maybe if we fast while we're praying, that will make the prayers more effective. And certainly if we do it all together as a church, that will be the most effective kind of prayer imaginable. This recommendation to pray to God to help solve the major conflicts in the world rings a little bit hollow if we remember that it was two years ago, yes, two years ago this month in April of 2020, that President Nelson called upon the church and the world to hold a day of fasting and prayer to turn back the effects of the pandemic, which did not work. In fact, the pandemic started spiking right after that first day of fasting and prayer. So President Nelson, not to be deterred, called for a second day of fasting and prayer within weeks of the first day of fasting and prayer. And lo and behold, it's two years later, President Nelson recognizes that the global pandemic still affects our lives, and yet he's still recommending the same old panacea, the prayers to God, which didn't help two years ago, and which, if history is the predictor of the future, will probably have just about as much effect in stopping the war in Ukraine. 
President Nelson goes on to talk about how important it is to preach the gospel because it is only through the gospel, i.e. Mormonism, the restored gospel of Jesus Christ, the one true gospel, that peace can be found, enduring peace. The gospel is the enduring solution for peace. Here's how President Nelson says it. I love the Lord Jesus Christ and testify that his gospel is the only enduring solution for peace. His gospel is a gospel of peace. His gospel is the only answer when many in the world are stunned with fear. This underscores the urgent need for us to follow the Lord's instructions to his disciples, to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We have the sacred responsibility to share the power and peace of Jesus Christ with all who will listen and who will let God prevail in their lives. Now, it is not clear how Mormonism is the only enduring solution for peace. Is this an interior kind of peace, something that the individual member of the church feels inside? Or is President Nelson talking about something more enduring and lasting, something external, something that actually stops the rockets from firing and the airplanes from bombing? Does it come when only a small fraction of the world is a member of the LDS church, like now? Or does everybody have to be converted first? And even if everybody were converted to Mormonism suddenly, miraculously, through an incredible surge in missionary effort, would that mean that there is suddenly going to be peace in the world? Would there be peace in the world if everyone were a Mormon the same way there is currently peace within the LDS Church? But is there peace inside the LDS Church right now? There seem to be schisms appearing everywhere, with more liberal-minded people backing ordination of women and women's rights, and also very concerned about LGBTQ rights and how the church treats those members of its community. Right now, I will tell you it doesn't sound too peaceful within the LDS church, even though they're all members. Then on the conservative side of things, we have members of the LDS church who are becoming disaffected and going after charismatic individuals such as Denver Snuffer and even Julie Rowe. They're seeking to find those charismatic gifts that were reported to have overflowed in early Mormonism, but now are nowhere to be found. Once again, this isn't sounding too peaceful. But wait, there's more. How about those who are breaking with the church over the issue of vaccines? No, I think that even if the entire world were Mormon, there would still not be peace found. Now, one of the main themes of this conference is going to be missionary work and putting the pressure on the young men especially to put in their papers and go on missions. President Nelson is going to mention it briefly and then hand the reins of this particular message over to Elder Ballard, who will speak about it at length immediately following President Nelson's remarks, which is probably a good move since President Nelson did not serve a mission. Now, I understand that the Korean War was going on and that he was serving in the military in a MASH unit over in Korea. And yet, I think there's more moral authority from a church leader asking young men to go on a mission if they themselves served a mission when they were young. That, President Nelson cannot say, but Elder Ballard can and will. Here's what President Nelson says about serving a mission. Today, I reaffirm strongly that the Lord has asked every worthy, able young man to prepare for and serve a mission. 
For Latter-day Saint young men, missionary service is a priesthood responsibility. You young men have been reserved for this time when the promised gathering of Israel is taking place. As you serve missions, you play a pivotal role in this unprecedented event. Okay, so now we start hearing about how missionary service is a priesthood responsibility. This is something that the young men are required to do. It is expected of them. It is their responsibility by virtue of their having the priesthood. When I was a young man back in the late 1970s, President Kimball was also talking about missionary work and emphasizing that program. He talked about lengthening our stride and saying that we have rested on some plateaus long enough. Give me this mountain. But back then when Spencer Kimball was president, the missionary work was exploding, or at least it certainly seemed to be from all reports. Today, however, it is having a hard time of things, this missionary work, and missionary serving seemed to be dwindling, and more missionaries seemed to be coming home early. So it is possible that the motive for emphasizing missionary work today may be more a sign of problems within the church than a call to convert the world. President Nelson wants to make the distinction between young men who are supposed to serve a mission and young women who really, if you do or not, it's okay. It's up to you. For you young and able sisters, a mission is also a powerful but optional opportunity. We love sister missionaries and welcome them wholeheartedly. What they contribute in this work is magnificent. Pray to know if the Lord would have you serve a mission, and the Holy Ghost will respond to your heart and mind. So young men do not have to pray to know if they should serve a mission, because that question has already been answered for them by church leaders. Young men are not supposed to pray to God to find out if they should serve a mission and find out whether the Holy Ghost manifests the truth of that to them in their heart and mind like the sisters are. No, they're just supposed to go ahead and serve. It is interesting that President Nelson doesn't even put the option of prayer on the table for young men, only for young women. Is it possible that President Nelson is concerned about what answer might be received by a young man praying to God to know if he should go on a mission? Best to foreclose that possibility right out of the gate. Now, as I say, this part of the call to missionary work is not really new to President Nelson. President Kimball hit it pretty hard and heavy back in the 1970s. The phrase that I remember from that time was when President Kimball said that every worthy young man should serve a mission. And then he followed it up by saying, and if he is not worthy, he needs to get himself worthy. So there wasn't a lot of wiggle room for young men, and specifically me, when it came to going on a mission. Back in the 1970s either, this has always been something that the church has pushed, pushed, pushed. And now, President Nelson turns the time over to President M. Russell Ballard, who is the acting president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, and he will speak on the subject of missionary service blessed my life forever. Now, I want to say a couple of positive things about President Ballard's talk, because not once, but twice, he actually shares things with the audience, which are vulnerable for him to share. They have to do with weaknesses in his life. And by weakness, I mean physical weakness. He talks about his parents and how they were not always active in the church, at least when he was young and of mission age. But here's the first thing he talks about, and it has to do with his eyes and suffering from macular degeneration. Thank you, President Nelson, for sharing again that counsel regarding missionary service. Brothers and sisters, several years ago, 
while speaking in general conference, the sight in my left eye was suddenly compromised by something called macula degeneration, which subsequently worsened and has left me without useful vision in that eye. Now, President Ballard uses this experience in order to talk about different kinds of vision and then talk about hindsight as a kind of vision and then use his hindsight to reflect over his life and his missionary experiences, both as a young man and as a mission president later on. But he certainly did not have to use the story about suffering from macular degeneration in his left eye. I found this disarming. And because he was vulnerable about this, I felt more drawn to him, like he was a human being now, not somebody who's up there as a talking head trying to act like he's perfect, everything's wonderful in his life, he's living the Mormon dream. But no, he actually had an instance where he's in general conference and the sight in his left eye starts going away. Now, I would have liked to have heard more about that experience and what happened as a result of suffering from that in the middle of giving a general conference talk I would have found that interesting, but he doesn't go there. Instead, he's focused on giving his long talk, focusing on missionary work, and that's where we're going to go. But I do want to give him kudos for mentioning the issue with his left eye, because I thought that was a real positive thing for Elder Ballard to do. And now he's going to talk about his parents. This is something that I do not recall having heard before from President Ballard or heard about President Ballard, that when he was a young man, his mom and his dad were inactive in the church. And he went and got his mission call, not only without their support, but even without their knowledge. He didn't tell his parents about his mission call until after he had received it. Here's how he relates the story. I've reflected on how the economic challenges associated with the Great Depression in the 1930s led to unfortunate turn for my parents and our family. My father became so involved in saving his automobile dealership and uh, supporting a family during this difficult period that for a time my parents did not attend church. Although we did not attend church services as a family, that did not prevent me from attending occasionally with my friends. In those days, going on a mission was in the back of my mind, but it wasn't something I talked about with my parents. While attending college, several friends and I decided to serve missionaries. Visiting with my bishop, I filled out my missionary application while my parents were out of town. And when my parents returned, I surprised them with the news that I had been a call to serve in Great Britain. I'm grateful for their enthusiastic support and for the good friends who helped me decide to serve. 
Now, it's interesting, the things that President Ballard hints at in this story, but doesn't actually come out and say. He does say that neither of his parents were attending church, but he seeks to explain this by saying, his father became so involved in saving his automobile dealership in the 1930s, the Great Depression, and supporting a family during this period, that for a time my parents did not attend church. Now, that's interesting because I can understand why his father's busy at the dealership, but why does that affect his wife? And why does that make it so that neither the mom or the dad go to church? I'm not sure what the answer is, but I think there's more going on than simply his dad trying to save his automobile dealership. Elder Ballard also indicates that he was not a regular attendee at church. He did not go every Sunday during this time because what he says is, although we did not attend church services as a family, that did not prevent me from attending occasionally with my friends. So it sounds like for a while there, Elder Ballard was pretty hit and miss. I would have liked to have heard more about that as well. He says going on a mission was in the back of his mind, but it wasn't something he talked about with his parents. Now, this is especially interesting because Elder Ballard is the grandson of Apostle Melvin J. Ballard and also the grandson of Hiram M. Smith. So President Ballard is the grandson of two apostles, one on each side of his family tree, which means that his parents are both children of apostles. If I'm doing my genealogical math right, I think that's the case. If Elder Ballard is the grandson of two apostles, then both of his parents have to be children of apostles, and yet they went through a time where they were inactive and not taking their family to church. It sounds from Elder Ballard like the kids were left to find their own way, and fortunately, for him, he attended church occasionally and talked with his friends about going on a mission and decided to put in his paperwork to go on a mission and then surprise his parents with the news once the missionary call came. There's another question I have about the story that I wish he would have gone into, which has to do with how it was that he got the money to serve on his mission. I'm guessing that his parents, if they were really having trouble with the automobile dealership in the 1930s, probably were not in a position to help him very much financially. So I would have been interested in knowing where he got his money to serve his mission, how much he saved up himself, whether it was part or all of it, and where the other funds came from. Now, this is the second vulnerable story that he has told, and he's still at the very beginning of his talk, and I think he opens the door really well to get my attention and want to listen to what he has to say. And the deal is this, is that when the leaders speak to the members of the church and the leaders pretend like everything's perfect in their lives, then the members have a hard time relating to them because the members know perfectly well that their lives are not a bed of roses. They've got difficulties, they've got challenges, and when leaders acknowledge their challenges, and their weaknesses, then it makes them people that the members can relate to. For instance, my situation was, I joined the church in 1978 right out of high school. I'm the only member of the church in my family. My parents are not members of the church, and they were not exactly thrilled about me going to Japan for two years to serve a mission, especially my mother was unhappy about that. I remember being at the airport after two months at the MTC and being on my way to Japan and going to a payphone. Yes, that archaic thing called a payphone that you put money into, and then you talk to somebody on the other line. Well, I was talking with my mother. And out of the blue, my mother comes up with this idea that she's telling me about on the phone, which is that she thinks that maybe six months is long enough for me to serve on my mission, and then I can come back home. Well, in retrospect, that doesn't sound like that bad of an idea. But at the time, I was mortified. I couldn't believe she was even thinking of such a thing. How would I ever be able to face my fellow missionaries again if I came home after only six months 
of my mission. So I had to tell her, no, I'm doing the whole thing, mom. I'm doing the whole two years. I love you, but I must be brutal. But it's the fact that I had this experience in my own life where my parents were not members of the church. Elder Ballard's parents were inactive members of the church. And because of that similarity and experience that we both share, his talking about that fact in general conference makes me feel closer to him and like we have more in common. So I want to commend Elder Ballard for giving these two different examples of being vulnerable in general conference. And I want to encourage him to continue to do so, as well as encourage all the other leaders of the church to make similar admissions and expressions of their humanity and their weaknesses and their problems and their issues, because that is only going to help them relate more with the members of the church. And it's only going to make the members of the church draw closer to them. Going on, Elder Ballard talks about when he was asked to speak in general conference of April of 1985, And he spoke in the priesthood session, and he spoke about missionary work. Missionary work has long been on Elder Ballard's mind. I remember back from the 1980s when he would frequently give talks about missionary work and challenging people to find someone and pray to find someone to teach the gospel. Here's what Elder Ballard said. In the April 1985 General Conference, I was assigned to speak in the priesthood session. I direct my remarks to the young men, I spoke preparing to, to uh, uh, prepare and uh, to serve a mission. I said of all the, the training I have received in my church assignments, none has been more important to me than the training I received as a 19-year-old elder serving a full-time mission. Now for Elder Ballard to say that of all the training he's received in his church assignments, none has been more important to him than the training he received as a 19-year-old elder serving a full-time mission. I know he's trying to promote serving a mission to the youth of the church that he's addressing and wants them to go on a mission. But on the other hand, I can't help thinking that this is a mildly embarrassing remark for him to make, standing as he was almost directly in front of the first presidency who are seated behind him, and none of whom served full-time missions. President Nelson did not serve a full-time mission, President Oaks did not serve a full-time mission, and President Eyring did not serve a full-time mission. So for Elder Ballard to say that his full-time mission was the most important training that he ever received, sounds like it's cutting the first presidency out of the loop on that important training, on that most important training. Further on down in the talk, President Ballard is really going to start putting the screws to everybody. And he says everybody really in the church needs to put pressure on these young men to go and serve a mission. He talks about the friends of the young man, this prospective missionary that he's talking to. Their friends need to put pressure on him to serve a mission. His parents need to put pressure on him to serve a mission. His bishop needs to put pressure on him to serve a mission. None will escape the pressure to serve a mission. Here's where he talks about the friends who need to exert the pressure. I also invite you to talk with your friends about serving a mission. And if one of your friends is not sure about serving, encourage him to talk with his bishop. Here's where he talks about the parents putting the pressure on the young man to serve a mission. Fathers and mothers of these wonderful youth, you have a vital role in this preparation process. Begin today to talk with your children about missionary service. 
We know that the family is the most profound influence in building our young men and young women to prepare. And in case pressure from friends and family is not enough to do the trick, here's where President Ballard tells the bishop to get into the act. I encourage you bishops to help all young men and young women who are close to missionary age to prepare to serve. And I also encourage you bishops to identify those who are old enough but who have not yet served. Invite young man, each young man to become a missionary as well as each young woman who desires to serve. So friends, family, and the bishop of the ward, all supposed to exert pressure. We really can't have too much peer pressure to get the young men to do what they are supposed to do. Remember, it is their priesthood responsibility after all. Then Elder Ballard makes this rather unusual comment in which he sort of presupposes that there's a danger about missionaries returning from their mission and then going inactive. Here's what he says. When you're released from your mission, remember that you are not released from activity in the church. Build upon the good habits you learned on your mission. Continue to strengthen your testimony. Work hard, pray, and be obedient to the Lord. Honor the covenants you have made. Continue to bless and serve others. I think this is an interesting thing for Elder Ballard to say. When I went on my mission back in 1979, I think it was more or less taken for granted that I would continue active in the church after being released. I mean, I don't remember any general authorities talking about that as an issue. Then the focus wasn't on staying active after release from a mission, which was assumed, but on getting married as quickly as possible and start having kids, regardless of financial circumstances. That much continues to be the case in the modern church. But interestingly, they feel they need to actually remind missionaries to stay active in the church after being released. If we didn't already know that there's a huge problem with missionaries coming home early or coming home on time and going inactive, we would be able to infer as much from this admonition given in general conference by Elder Ballard. By the way, my voice probably sounds funny. I am sorry, it is spring 2022. I am in the midst of my spring allergies and I have been coughing my guts out and managed to make myself somewhat hoarse in the process. We'll see how long my voice holds out. I just wanted to explain to you that's why my voice may sound a little bit funny from time to time. I mean funnier than usual. The next talk is we are the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And yes, the we is emphasized. This is by Reina Aberto, the second counselor in the Relief Society General Presidency. The first thing I want to say about President Reina Aberto's talk is that she gives her talk with enthusiasm and passion. There's not a huge amount of substance in what she says. By that I mean it's not head and shoulders above any of the other talks in general conference as far as its content goes. It's pretty much the same old stuff as far as I can tell. But she gives it with such passion and with such enthusiasm that it makes it much more interesting. And that's another speaking tip I want to give to the leaders of the church is that if you give enthusiasm when you're talking, it's going to make it seem a lot more interesting to the people who are listening because then it makes them think that you actually are passionate and enthusiastic about your subject. 
instead of just reading it in this slow, droning voice. What you're communicating to the audience is, your talk is not only boring, but even you know it's boring, so why should I be interested in hearing what you have to say when obviously you are not? President Alberto avoids this throughout her talk, and I wanted to give her props for that. She also starts her talk with a story reflecting her vulnerability when she talks about being a single mom and coming to church for the first time when she was 26 years old. Here's how she starts her talk. After receiving an invitation to come and see, I attended the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints for the first time at the age of 26. I had recently separated from my first husband. I had a three-year-old boy, and I felt powerless with fear. When I entered that building, I was filled with warmth as I perceived the faith and joy of the people surrounding me. It was truly a refuge from the storm. Three weeks later, I made the baptismal covenant with Heavenly Father and started my journey as a disciple of Christ. So I think this is really, really good. This was a pattern that was starting in conference. Now, I have only really focused on the first session of Saturday morning at this point. I want to spend all my efforts on this session, do the best job I can on it, and then move to the next session and so on until I've done all five sessions of general conference. But this is a great start to general conference. And I immediately felt an affinity to President Reina Alberto when she said that she had separated from her first husband, she has a three-year-old boy, she's 26 years old, she felt powerless with fear. Well, who wouldn't under those circumstances? I mean, I'm sure there are some people who don't, but it's a very human, very natural reaction to feel, and that's something that made me feel like I could relate to her in her position, especially given the fact that I have been divorced twice. There are other members of the church who have been divorced, and those members, as well as myself, are able to more relate to President Reina Alberto simply because she brought up the fact and was vulnerable about that in general conference. I did note that it was only three weeks after the first time she went to church that she got baptized, or as she puts it, I made the baptismal covenant. Well, you can't make the baptismal covenant without getting baptized, and started her journey as a disciple of Christ. So three weeks from first time to church to being baptized, which is pretty darn quick if you ask me. I don't know, maybe she felt she had learned everything she needed to know. I imagine that she heard all of the missionary discussions in that time period. I took all the missionary discussions in 10 days and got baptized in less than two weeks. But I did have, for years prior to that, an exposure to the church through my friend, Bruce. And I had been to church a number of times and to church activities a number of times before that. But apparently three weeks was not too soon for President Alberto because here she is, still in the church, and now risen to the level of being in the Relief Society General Presidency. Sister Alberto also makes a rather remarkable move in focusing the identity of the church not on the doctrine and not even on the leaders, but on the members of the church. This is the main theme of her talk is that the members are the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Here's how she puts it in one instance in this talk. While talking to a friend going through a difficult time, I asked how he was surviving financially. In tears, he replied that his bishop was helping him using fast offering funds. He added, I don't know where my family and I will be if it wasn't for the church. I replied, the church is the members. 
They are the ones who willingly and joyfully give fast offerings to help those of us in need. You are receiving the fruits of their faith and determination to follow Jesus Christ. Now, I really like this move on Sister Roberto's part of taking the focus off the leadership of the church who only authorize the distribution of the goods and focus it instead on the members of the church who are the ones who supplied the money and goods themselves in the first place to be distributed by the bishop. Now, lest anybody think that President Roberto is about to incite some sort of insurrection on the part of the members against the leadership of the church, no, that's not the case, or at least it doesn't seem to be the case because she makes sure to say later, we are the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints with Christ at his head and the prophet as his mouthpiece. So she definitely gives due deference and kisses the ring of President Nelson. And she quotes President Nelson at the end of her talk as a further sign that she is still squarely within the fold and behind President Nelson. I testify that as Christ's Church, we are the means through which, like President Russell and Nelson taught, our Savior and Redeemer, Jesus Christ, will perform some of his mightiest works between now and when he comes again. I know it's customary to quote President Nelson somewhere in every general conference talk, and I know that there are a number of different things that President Nelson has said that could be quoted, but this particular quote is mildly problematic in that if Jesus Christ is really going to perform some of his mightiest works between now and when he comes again, I guess that doesn't include turning back the pandemic in response to two worldwide days of fasting and prayer. But we continue to wait and watch because if President Nelson said that Jesus Christ is still going to perform some of his mightiest works and if those mighty works don't include turning back a pandemic, then they must be really, really something special. I can hardly wait to see what Jesus Christ is going to perform next. Or maybe by not answering the prayers to turn the pandemic back, Jesus Christ is intentionally setting the bar very low so that any work he performs in the future will look really mighty by comparison. Now we go to a couple of talks by Elder Bednar and also by Elder Anderson, and they both have the same overall message, which is mainly don't listen to Radio Free Mormon. And not only don't listen to Radio Free Mormon, but don't listen to anybody who has an opinion or who has a point of view different than that espoused by the leaders of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. In other words, restrict yourself to what they say, what they publish, and what they want you to read, and don't pay any heed to anybody else. It was kind of remarkable that we got not one, but two talks on this subject, back-to-back, belly-to-belly. First one, Elder David Bednar. The title of his talk is, But We Heeded them not. What Elder Bednar is going to do is, of course, use the lyrics to the hymn, Let Us All Press On, and especially the line, We will heed not what the wicked may say, but the Lord alone we will obey. And he's going to hammer this, We will heed not line, to make sure everybody knows they shouldn't pay any attention to anything that anybody else says, well, other than Elder Bednar and his compatriots, of course. He's then going to take that hymn and cross-reference it with Lehi's dream of the tree of life as recorded in 1 Nephi chapter 8, and Lehi's response to the good people in the great and spacious building who are laughing and pointing and mocking and jeering. One hymn that has blessed my life in remarkable ways is Let Us All Press On. Recently, I have been pondering and learning about a specific phrase in the refrain of that hymn. We will heed not what the wicked may say, but the Lord alone we will obey. We will heed not. 
As I sing, Let Us All Press On, I often think of the people in Lehi's vision, pressing forward on the path that led to the tree of life, who were not merely clinging to, but were continually holding fast to the rod of iron until they came forth and fell down and partook of the fruit of the tree. Lehi described multitudes in the great and spacious building that were pointing the finger of scorn at him and those partaking of the fruit. His response to the jeers and insults is magnificent and memorable. But we heeded them not. Okay, this is a classic example of overstatement by leaders of the church. When they're talking about scriptures, especially when they're talking about other church leaders, and especially when they're talking about other church leaders who are above them in the hierarchy, there is this tendency to overly praise what has been said. And in this case, Elder Bednar is going to overly praise not what Lehi said in the Book of Mormon, but what he did not say. All that happens in the Book of Mormon is that Lehi did not pay any heed to the people in the great and spacious building. And I think that can be important enough as a principle, but I think that Elder Bednar goes a little over the top when he said his response to the jeers and insults is magnificent and memorable, but we heeded them not. Is that really magnificent? Is it really memorable? Well, I guess it's memorable since he remembers it, but magnificent does seem to be a bit over the top to me. I guess it's a matter of personal preference, but this is something I see over and over again in general conference. is highly lionizing and talking about how deep and profound, very pedestrian statements and insights are. And it usually goes along this way is that a speaker is going to talk about a general authority, usually one higher than he or she is, and say how profoundly this general authority puts something. And then they quote the general authority and you go, meh, that doesn't sound very profound at all. It's the difference between the sycophantic adulation used to describe a particular saying by a general authority when compared with the statement itself. There's frequently this massive disconnect that I feel. I don't know if you feel it too, but I suspect I'm not the only one. Next, Elder Bednar will define the word heed in terms of it meaning to take notice of something or pay attention to something, with the obvious implication that we should not pay any attention to anybody who says anything critical about the church. The word heed suggests taking notice of or paying attention to someone or something. Thus, the lyrics of the hymn, Let Us All Press On, admonish us to make an affirmative decision to pay no attention to what the wicked may say. And Lehi and the people who were with him, who were partaking of the fruit of the tree, provide a strong example of not paying attention to the mocking and scorn that so frequently come from the great and spacious building. Okay, so Elder Bednar is going to combine the words of one line of a hymn with the great and spacious building as a framework for his talk. Both include the word heed in a negative connotation, i.e. heed not those who are saying things that are negative about the church. And by negative, I mean anything out of harmony with what the current church leaders are saying. Elder Bednar advises members to not listen or read anything about the church that is not correlated. And if a member should somehow stumble across something like this inadvertently, they need to pay no attention to it. Obviously, if they are to pay no attention to it when it comes their way, it must follow that they are not to seek it out on their own. 
Next, Elder Bednar is going to take a page out of Brad Wilcox's book. You may remember the constant refrain of Brad Wilcox in his recent talk to the youth at Alpine Stake in Utah, where he said, if you leave this church, you miss everything, or you lose everything. And he said that a number of times. Well, Elder Bednar is going to say a similar thing at the end of this particular paragraph. Play the tape. Valiant members often highlight the importance of inviting the power of the Holy Ghost into their lives through meaningful scripture study, fervent prayer, and proper preparation to participate in the ordinance of the sacrament. Also mentioned frequently are the spiritual support of faithful family members and trusted friends, the vital lessons learned through ministering and serving in the Lord's restored Church, and the capacity to discern the absolute emptiness of anything in or coming from the great and spacious building. So here, Elder Bednar suggests that those who are not members of the church and are critical in any way of the church inhabit the great and spacious building and there in that great and spacious building and perforce in the lives of those who criticize the church, there is an absolute emptiness, to use Elder Bednar's expression, an absolute emptiness of anything in or coming from the great and spacious building. The next part of his talk is very interesting to me because here Elder Bednar invokes the image of a compass in finding our way. He does not connect this compass he speaks of to the Liahona, but of course we know that the Liahona was a compass. First, let's start with his quote in which he talks about this compass. Gospel covenants and ordinances operate in our lives much like a compass. A compass is a device used to indicate the cardinal directions of north, south, east, and west for purposes of navigation and geographic orientation. In a similar way, our covenants and ordinances point us to and help us always remember our connection with the Lord Jesus Christ as we progress along the covenant path. Now, as I said, this part of Elder Bednar's talk was a bit confusing to me because the compass in the story is the Liahona, which we know helped Lehi and company in their journey in the wilderness to find the correct path. But in the dream of the tree of life, there is no compass. There is a rod of iron, which is what is used to determine the correct direction to the tree of life. Now, of course, what this put me in mind of was a very famous talk back in the 1960s by an individual named Richard D. Pohl. Richard Pohl wrote on various topics in Latter-day Saint history and thought. His religious approach was influenced by his studies at Texas Christian University, where he examined and rejected creationism, scriptural literalism, and prophetic infallibility. In 1963, Richard Pohl prepared a paper called What the Church Means to People Like Me, which was delivered in his Palo Alto Ward sacrament meeting in August of 1967 and published in Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought. His paper drew upon Book of Mormon imagery. In Lehi and Nephi's vision, people held on to an iron rod that followed a single path to salvation. In another story, a mysterious instrument called the Liahona, remember the Liahona, the compass, pointed righteous travelers toward their destination. Richard Pohl's paper set up a dichotomy between church members who see the gospel as clear and exact, 
or in other words, who hold to the iron rod, and those who follow the guidance of the church as a compass to lead their lives. Here's what he said about that in his paper. The iron rod saint does not look for questions, but for answers. And in the gospel, he finds or is confident that he can find the answer to every important question. The Liahona saint, on the other hand, is preoccupied with questions and skeptical of answers. He or she finds in the gospel answers to enough important questions so that he or she can function purposefully without answers to the rest. This subject caught the attention of LDS intellectuals and leaders and it became a poignant metaphor in cultural discourse. It would become Richard Pohl's best-known article and it was republished several times after that. As you might imagine, leaders in the church were not really enthusiastic about this distinction between Iron Rod Mormons and Liahona Mormons. As far as the church leaders are concerned, or at least most of them, I have to remember that Hugh B. Brown was around at the time, but Harold B. Lee and the majority of church leaders believed that being an Iron Rod Latter-day Saint was the only way to be a Latter-day Saint. And all this talk about Liahona Mormons was either heresy or the next best thing to it. Interestingly, in 1971, October General Conference, Harold B. Lee gave an address called The Iron Rod. No, actually, it was not October of 1971. It was April General Conference of 1971. And we are very, very fortunate because on the LDS Church's official website, they only go back to 1971 with their archives of General Conference talks. And April 1971 is the first General Conference and the earliest General Conference that we have access to on the church website. By which I mean that Harold B. Lee and his talk about the Iron Rod barely missed the cutoff established by the church. In his talk, The Iron Rod, Harold B. Lee unsurprisingly describes Lehi's dream of the Tree of Life and goes on to emphasize that it is critical to hold on to the Iron Rod while going through this life. If there is any one thing most needed in this time of tumult and frustration, when men and women and youth and young adults are desperately seeking for answers to the problems which afflict mankind, it is a rod of iron as a safe guide along the straight path on the way to eternal life amidst the strange and devious roadways that would lead to destruction and to the ruin of all that is virtuous, lovely, or of good report. Now, that much is very common. We hear that kind of message all the time in relation to the iron rod from church leaders. But then Harold B. Lee goes out of his way to address those members of the church who identify themselves more as Liahona saints. There are many who profess to be religious and speak of themselves as Christians, according to one such, as accepting the scriptures only as sources of inspiration and moral truth, and then ask in their smugness, do the revelations of God give us a handrail to the kingdom of God, as the Lord's messenger told Lehi, or merely a compass? Unfortunately, some among us who claim to be church members, but are somewhat like the scoffers in Lehi's vision, standing aloof and seemingly inclined to hold in derision the faithful who choose to accept church authorities as God's special witnesses of the gospel and his agents in directing the affairs of the church. There are those in the church who speak of themselves as liberals, who, as one of our former presidents has said, read by the lamp of their own conceit. One time 
Uh, I asked one of our church education leaders how he would define a liberal in the church. He answered in one sentence, a liberal in the church is merely one who does not have a testimony. So you can see it is clear that Harold B. Lee is aware of Richard Pohl's paper, or at least of those distinctions that he created between an iron rod saint and a Liahona saint. And even though the Book of Mormon does talk about the Liahona as being a compass that Lehi and his party followed successfully through the wilderness, Harold B. Lee teaches that the iron rod is the only way that is acceptable to follow direction from God, by which, of course, he means follow the direction that comes from church leaders. It's also clear that Harold B. Lee equates Liahona saints with intellectuals who read by the lamp of their own conceit and as liberals who, as he says, are merely people who do not have a testimony. Later on in his talk, Harold B. Lee really doubles down on people like Richard Pohl, who claim to be Liahona saints and who would teach other church members about being a Liahona saint. Harold B. Lee likens Richard Pohl and Liahona saints, or Liahona Mormons, as being among the group that the Lord warned it would be better for them that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Conversion must mean more than just being a card-carrying member of the church with a tithing receipt, a membership card, a temple recommend, etc., etc. It means to overcome the tendencies to criticize and to strive continually to improve the inward weaknesses and not merely the outward appearances. The Lord issued a warning to those who would seek to destroy the faith of individual or to lead him away from the word of God, or cause him to lose his grasp on the iron rod, wherein was safety by faith in a divine Redeemer and his purposes concerning this earth and its peoples. The Master warned, But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and that he were drowned in the depths of the sea. The Master was impressing the fact that rather than ruin the soul of a true believer, it were better for him to suffer an earthly death rather than to incur the penalty of jeopardizing his own eternal destiny. Now this is strong language indeed because Harold B. Lee here suggests for Liahona Mormons that it would be better for them to simply die right now than to jeopardize their eternal destiny by promoting this idea within the church. So going back to Elder Bednar's talk now, Elder Bednar, as you will recall, is talking about Lehi's dream of the tree of life. He's talking about the iron rod and all of a sudden, out of seemingly nowhere, he brings in the analogy of a compass. And the way he talks about it, the compass is not just an alternative means of finding one's direction, but it becomes subsumed within his discussion of the iron rod. Which raised the question in my mind, is Elder Bednar doing this intentionally in order to address the dichotomy between iron rod Mormons and Liahona Mormons? And is that why he seems to be conflating a compass with the iron rod in order to dilute the difference and co-opt from the Liahona Mormons their distinguishing attribute. In other words, there's an iron rod and there's a compass, but the compass just becomes part of the iron rod. It's no longer a separate means of finding one's way in the wilderness. Now, I have no idea if Elder Bednar is doing this intentionally, but it certainly looks suspicious enough and there's enough historical background on Liahona Mormons and iron rod Mormons to make me wonder if that is indeed exactly what he's trying to do here. 
This would be Elder Bednar's version of saying, there are no Liahona Mormons in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The next talk is by Elder Neil L. Anderson. It's called Following Jesus, Being a Peacemaker. And here, Neil Anderson talks about a very similar kind of message to the one given by Elder Bednar about not heeding what anybody who is a critic of the church, has to say. Elder Anderson hits this theme from a different angle and suggests that the way we need to respond is with peace, not with vitriol and not with anger. And I think that that part of the message is all to the good. We will also see that as Elder Anderson goes on, his talk actually conflicts at one point with Elder Bednar's talk, or at least it seems to. Because whereas Elder Bednar says, don't listen to anybody or pay heed to anything that is said by a critic of the church, Elder Anderson's talk implies that at least with some of those critics, we do interact, we do listen to what they say, and it's our job then to respond in a peaceful manner. We cannot respond in a peaceful manner to a criticism unless we are paying attention to it in the first place. On the other hand, Elder Anderson goes a little bit further than Elder Bednar in talking about the sources from which members of the church can learn some pretty faith-damaging things about their religion. Yes, he uses the I word, internet. The powerful impact of the internet is a blessing and a challenge, unique to our time. In a world of social media and information superhighways, one person's voice can be multiplied exponentially That voice, whether true or false, whether fair or prejudicial, whether kind or cruel, moves instantly across the world. Social media posts of thoughtfulness and goodness are often quietly under the radar, while words of contempt and anger are frequently thundering in our ears. Whether with political philosophy, people in the news, or opinions on the pandemic. No one or no subject is immune from this social phenomenon of polarized voices, including the Savior and His restored gospel. Okay, we all knew he would get to it, didn't we? And he did, finally there, in the last sentence. He starts off by talking about the powerful impact of the internet is a blessing and a challenge Well, he finally gets to how it's a challenge in the last sentence, where he says no one or no subject, including the Savior and his restored gospel, i.e. the LDS Church, is immune from this social phenomenon of polarized voices. So I think it's clear that Elder Anderson is coming from the position that criticisms of the Savior and his restored gospel are the false voices on the internet, not the true voices. They're the prejudicial voices on the internet, not the fair voices. They're the cruel voices on the internet, not the kind voices. And that distinction, Elder Anderson hammers home. He encourages the members to be peacemakers, and then Contra Elder Bednar tells us that if we encounter people who disparage the LDS Church, we should not shrink from them, but we should remain confident in our faith and share our beliefs with conviction, but always void of anger or malice. In other words, to interact with critics of the church in a positive way, not to ignore them altogether, as Elder Bednar suggests. How does a peacemaker calm and cool the fiery darts? Certainly not by shrinking before those who disparage us. Rather, we remain confident in our faith, sharing our beliefs with conviction, but always void of anger or malice. 
As I said, this follows up on Elder Bednar's talk in that we are warned against alternate voices, and Elder Anderson even specifically includes the internet, which is always risky. Also note that the idea that Elder Bednar put forward of paying no attention to anything critical about the church includes the idea that anything critical of the church must be coming from the great and spacious building, and therefore, anything critical about the church must be inspired by Satan. This means it is impossible to level a true and accurate criticism of the church. At least that is the underlying theme of Elder Bednar's message. If something is critical of the church, we know right away that it's from Satan and therefore we should pay no attention to it. It also means we can immediately identify truth not by the substance of what is said or by the merit of the argument and the evidence, but instead we know it is truth if it corresponds with exactness to what modern church leaders are telling us. Again, in the LDS church, truth is determined not so much by what is said, but by who says it. Going back to Elder Anderson's talk, he once again speaks about the internet in terms of social media platforms, which apparently are a bigger and bigger problem for the church as time goes by, big enough that Elder Anderson feels he needs to address it in general conference. Because of social media platforms, One voice of disbelief can appear to be a multitude of negative voices. But even if it is a multitude of voices, we choose the path of peacemakers. Now Elder Anderson is talking about the number of people or apparent number of people who are espousing a different view than the LDS churches. But of course, the number of people or the paucity of people who are espousing such views has nothing to do with the truth either. It doesn't make any difference how many people are saying something or how few. It's whether what they're saying is true that matters, the substance of what they're saying and the evidence that backs it up. The idea promoted by Elder Anderson seems to be that negative opinions encountered on social media are artificially amplified through tagging, etc. And so we shouldn't think that there are that many people out there with a negative opinion of the church. Really, this is just smoke and mirrors. It looks like there's a lot more people criticizing the church than there really are. It is interesting that Elder Anderson does appear to be concerned about the fact that it looks like a lot of people are leaving the church and a lot of people are making their opinions known on the internet and he wants to assure his audience that really it just looks that way. That's not really the case. There aren't that many people leaving the church and also there aren't that many people leaving the church and then criticizing it on the internet. Appearances to the contrary. That's just the way it looks. It really isn't that many people. Don't worry about it. The church is strong. The church is growing. The church is true. All is well in Zion. And of course, Elder Anderson is now going to go to the next trope, which is that simply because people are critical of the LDS church and its leaders means that the LDS church is true. Why? Because it suffers persecution. It suffers criticism. Play the tape. Although our humble desire is for the Savior's teachings to be honored by all, the words of the Lord through his prophets are often contrary to the thinking and trends of the world. It's always been so. The Savior said to his apostles, If the world hates you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. All these things will they do because they know not him that sent me. I think we all know what Elder Anderson is referring to here, and primarily I think he's referring to the reaction by members of the church and people outside the church 
to certain unpopular opinions that church leaders hold and teach in the face of feminism and LGBTQ issues. It is certainly true that the effort to hold on to the teachings of bygone years is not making the leaders popular in certain quarters. The main thing that should be focused on is not how it impacts the leaders, but how it impacts the members. At least, that's what I think the leaders should be focusing on. Not how this impacts the leaders, their teaching of such unpopular ideas, but how it impacts the members who themselves are affected by the unpopular ideas the leaders teach. Those members who leave over these issues, and also those members with families who are thrown into chaos over this issue. But true to form, Elder Anderson doesn't talk about any of that. He doesn't talk about the negative impact on members of the church that the teachings have. Instead, he plays the victim card. And he says that because the world finds these particular teachings unpopular, then that means that the world hates the apostles for teaching them. And because the world hates them for teaching them, it means that what they're teaching is true. And he's got a scripture from the New Testament ready to back up his claim. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. As I say, it is the pain of the members that are impacted by these teachings that should be talked about by Elder Anderson, instead of focusing on how it makes the leaders feel and how it makes the leaders unpopular, and therefore how it makes the leaders true disciples and apostles of Jesus Christ. By the way, this is a dangerous criterion for truth that Elder Anderson advances, that just because a teaching is unpopular, it is evidence of its correctness. If the church taught the members to sacrifice a household pet once a year for a special sacramental meal, it would probably be unpopular. But its unpopularity would not be evidence that the teaching is true. Examples of the same sort of thing might be multiplied endlessly. But I think that's enough to establish the point that just because a teaching is not popular does not mean the teaching is true. Elder Anderson now talks about how the church was helping out recently to pass a bill in Arizona that would help protect LGBTQ people. In February, a headline in the Arizona Republic stated, bipartisan bills supported by Latter-day Saints would protect gay and transgender Arizonans. We as Latter-day Saints are pleased to be part of a coalition of faith, business, LGBTQ people, and community leaders who have worked together in a spirit of trust and mutual respect. President Russell M. Nelson once thoughtfully asked, can we not, cannot boundary lines exist without becoming battle lines? Now, this kind of anecdote I find somewhat problematic because Elder Anderson is boasting about how helpful church leadership is to the LGBTQ community while at the same time working behind the scenes to legally discriminate against them under the banner of religious freedom. I remember that back in early 2015, the church was making similar announcements about all the ways that they were helping work with government to protect the rights of LGBTQ individuals, while at the same time working behind the scenes to implement a policy that discriminated against them, and not only against them, but against their children. Elder Oaks will give a talk later on in conference, which will serve as a nice counterpoint to this talk by Elder Anderson. Elder Oaks will also profess his love and respect for LGBTQ persons, but at the same time will make it clear that their kind is not welcome in the LDS church, at least not so long as their kind is acting like their kind. Elder Anderson goes on. There are times when being a peacemaker means that we resist the impulse to respond and instead with dignity remain quiet. 
It is heartbreaking for all of us when harsh or dismissive words about the Savior, His followers, and His Church are spoken or published by those who once stood with us, took the sacrament with us, and testified with us of the divine mission of Jesus Christ. This, is, this also happened during the Savior's ministry. Some of the disciples of Jesus who were with Him during His most majestic miracles determined to walk no more with Him. Sadly, not all will remain firm in their love for the Savior and their determination to keep His commandments. Now Elder Anderson is beginning to put a fine point on his message. It is being specifically addressed to those who, like myself, were once members of the church but have now distanced themselves from the church and have some things that are somewhat critical to say about the church. And by critical, I mean telling the truth about the LDS church that the LDS church does not, repeat not, want you to know. That's what passes for criticism in today's LDS Church, and to one degree or another may have been the same definition that's existed in the LDS Church since its inception. To quote a passage from the Book of Mormon, the truth is hard against all unrighteousness. But Elder Anderson does not quote that passage. And here, Elder Anderson most closely approaches the blanket admonition of Elder Bednar to pay no attention to anything critics of the church have to say when he says, Sadly, not all will remain firm in their love for the Savior and their determination to keep His commandments. Jesus taught us to withdraw from the circle of anger and contention. Okay, so apparently, if the negative information is angry and contentious enough, we shouldn't respond at all. Only at a lesser level do we respond with peace. At least that seems to be what Elder Anderson's message is. If there are people who criticize the church, then we answer them peacefully and we do not shrink from them. But if they are in any manner contentious or angry, then we need to withdraw from them, i.e. pay no heed to them, i.e. pay no attention to them, i.e. Don't listen to anything they have to say. This part seems to undercut the main thrust of Elder Anderson's message because most members of the church, when they hear anything negative about the church, it doesn't make any difference how it's said or in what tone or in what volume. It is generally considered to be the spirit of contention. And to the extent that members do see any criticism of the church as being contentious, then that means that according to Elder Anderson, they should withdraw and pay no heed to them. As to those people that Elder Anderson is pointing out who have left the church and now criticize it, he likened them first to those disciples of Jesus who determined to walk no more with him, but will shortly liken those same people to Judas Iscariot. Each time I read John chapter 13, I am reminded of the Savior's perfect example as a peacemaker. Jesus lovingly washed the feet of the apostles. Then we read that he was troubled in his spirit as he thought about one he loved preparing to betray him. I've tried to imagine the thoughts and feelings of the Savior as Judas left. Interestingly, at that sobering moment, Jesus spoke no more about his troubling feelings or about betrayal. Rather, he spoke to his apostles about love, his words cascading through the centuries. Now, it's important to note that Elder Anderson does not specifically call those who leave the church and then perhaps are critical of it, such as yours truly, Judas, or identified as Judas, at least not in this particular paragraph. What he does say is, I have tried to imagine the thoughts and feelings of the Savior as Judas left. 
However, when you take that statement in connection with what Elder Anderson said previously, the connection does become a little bit stronger because it's only a little bit prior to this that he stated, it is heartbreaking for all of us when harsh or dismissive words about the Savior, his followers, and his church are spoken or published by those who once stood with us, took the sacrament with us, and testified with us of the divine mission of Jesus Christ. He then says, this also happened during the Savior's ministry, gives the generic example from John about some of the disciples who walk no more with Jesus, and then a short time later makes his statement about, I have tried to imagine the thoughts and feelings of the Savior as Judas left. So it's not hard to understand how people who listened to this talk got the impression that Elder Anderson was calling those who leave the church and then are critical of the church a Judas. Now, identifying a person or group of people as a Judas has a long and tragic historical record, especially for the Jews. As Christianity gained ascendancy in the world over the Jewish religion, and by that I mean their power became greater than the Jewish religion, it became extremely common to equate the Jewish people with Judas of the New Testament and to blame the Jewish people for the action of Judas in betraying Jesus Christ. In fact, it was very common for the Jews to be called Christ killers or God killers. One cannot imagine a worse sin than this, at least not if one is a Christian, and to blame a group of people for killing their God led to disastrous consequences. So the first thing I want to say here is that I am not saying that Elder Anderson's implication that members of the LDS church who leave the church and then are critical of it are like Judas to be anything near the pogroms that have occurred historically against the Jewish people. On the other hand, I think it's very important that we be careful with our use of potentially explosive language such as calling a person or referring to a person or implying that a person is a Judas because it can tend to make members of the religion that have identified a group of people as a Judas more likely to persecute them and sometimes in horrific ways. We remember that in our own church history, there was a great deal of animosity that was perhaps understandably engendered when Joseph Smith and Hiram Smith were martyred in Carthage jail. And we also know that as part of the early temple endowment, members of the church were encouraged to pray to God Almighty to avenge the deaths of Joseph Smith and Hiram Smith. And while I believe the specific language of the temple ordinance was to pray to God to avenge the blood of the prophets, it is sometimes a great temptation to want to give God a little help in the execution of the vengeance. And that certainly seems to be the case with what happened with the Jews vis-a-vis -vis the Christians historically. I remembered studying about the treatment of Jews at the hand of Christians historically, and I remembered that the phrase to call the Jews by the Christians was Christ killer or even God killer. And I went and did a little more research in preparation for this podcast, and I found a really good article on the subject. It's brief, it's clear. It's written by a person who goes by the name Philo Logos and it was published June 30th, 2013. And here is what Philo Logos has to say in this abbreviated version of his article. Still, the persistence in ordinary American speech of the word Judas in the sense of a vile traitor must grate on Jewish ears. Although in our ecumenical age, Christian churches may have dropped the charge of deicide, that's God killer, deicide against the Jews, Judas the name Judas, even if uttered, as it generally is, without the slightest anti-Semitic intent, conjures up an old and still potent image 
of the Jew as a Jesus Christ killer. This is the kind of power that labeling a person or group of people as a Judas even today can have, even if it is outside of a Jewish context, even if it's used in the way that Elder Anderson used it in general conference. The article goes on. The word, of course, derives from the New Testament character of Judas Iscariot, Jesus' disciple who betrays him by pointing him out to the constables of the Jewish high priest, by whom he is arrested and turned over to his Roman crucifiers. The betrayal is particularly nefarious because it is carried out by means of a kiss, which Judas gives Jesus as he and his disciples are spending the night after the Passover Seder outside the walls of Jerusalem. You can tell this is written by a Jewish person himself or herself. Judas has prearranged this with the high priest's men to let them know which of the group Jesus is. His kiss identifies Jesus for the temple police or the temple guard, the ones who have come to arrest him. True, Jesus' 11 other disciples who stick by him are all Jews too. In this respect, there is nothing distinctively Jewish about Judas's act, but it is here that his name comes in. The Iscariot part of it is harmless. It most likely derives from Hebrew Ish Krayot, a person from the southern Palestinian town of Krayot. In other words, Judas Iscariot means this is the Judas who is from this particular town in Palestine. Judas, however, is anything but harmless. In the Greek of the New Testament, it is Judas, which is the Greek form of Hebrew Yehuda, our English Judah. So that's kind of a long way of saying that the Judah in the Old Testament, you remember that one of the 12 sons of Jacob was named Judah. Well, Judah in the Old Testament becomes Judas in the New Testament because in the Greek form, it's very common to add the S at the end instead of having the H at the end in the Hebrew transliteration, which basically means it's the same name. Judah of the Old Testament is Judas of the New Testament the same way that Joshua or Yeshua of the Old Testament is Jesus of the New Testament. It's the same name, just being transliterated from different languages. Going on, Judas was a common name among Jews in late Second Temple times. Yet, Yehuda or Judah is also the Hebrew name of the province of Judea, the hilly area south of Jerusalem from which Hebrew gets its word for a Jew, Yehudi, a word that appears in the New Testament and is the ancestor of the word for Jew in many European languages, including Latin and English. So in other words, even though Judah is a name in the Old Testament and the corresponding name for it is Judas in the New Testament, where we get our word Jew today is more from the area south of Jerusalem, which was called Judah as well. But even though etymologically speaking, that's where we get our word Jew from today, it seemed irresistible to early Christians to equate Jew as deriving from Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus Christ. Although Judas was thus only one of Jesus' Jewish disciples, his name has screamed Jew to Christians, both in New Testament times and later. Indeed, he became, for Christianity, the prototype of the Jew, the treacherous, devilish, money-grubbing figure that all Jews were said to resemble. In medieval passion plays, the popular religious pageants that are one of our best sources for knowing what ordinary Christians thought and felt, he, Judas, was a prominent character, often portrayed as a hook-nosed Jewish user-er, i.e. one who lends money at interest. In parts of Europe where no or few Jews existed, he was played by a local Christian townsman, the one Jew that everyone knew and recognized. 
So perfectly, in fact, does the figure of Judas meet the requirements of Christian hostility toward Judaism that it has been suggested by more than one New Testament scholar that he is a purely fictional character invented by the Gospels for anti-Jewish purposes. There are certainly aspects of the New Testament narrative that would seem to corroborate this, starting with the name Judas itself. Now, here's an interesting theory that I had not encountered before, that the character Judas is an invention of the New Testament authors in order to promote anti-Jewish or anti-Semitic feelings. I'm not sure I'm completely swayed by this argument, but here it is, and it's interesting to listen to. Just the same. The article goes on. There is Judas's betrayal of Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, a clear literary borrowing from the 20 pieces of silver for which Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery in Egypt. There is the fact the high priest's constabulary, or in other words, temple guards, hardly needed a secret informer to identify Jesus, who had been publicly active all over Jerusalem in the days before his arrest. There are the totally different versions of Judas's death. In the book of Matthew, written scant decades after Jesus's crucifixion, Judas is said to have hung himself, while in Acts of the Apostles, also an early Christian book, we read that he fell in a field and burst asunder so that all his bowels gushed out. This article concludes, the death of a real Judas, as opposed to an imaginary one, would presumably have been remembered more accurately. So let me give you the other side of this particular argument. The other side of the argument is that Judas betraying Jesus, as he is written about in the New Testament, is a problem for the New Testament authors. In other words, there's a source of embarrassment here that Jesus, who can read people's minds and knows the thoughts and intents of their heart, nevertheless chooses an individual to be one of his 12 closest disciples, i.e. his apostles, and he chooses one who's going to betray him. Why couldn't Jesus see that coming? Why did he pick Judas as one of his apostles only to have Judas betray him? This creates a problem in Christianity. And the fact that it creates a problem in Christianity is an indication that it's probably something that really happened. In other words, it would be unlikely for a Christian who believes Jesus to have been someone who could read minds and see people's thoughts and intents. It would be unlikely for such a Christian author to write a depiction of Jesus as picking a person such as Judas Iscariot, who's going to betray him later on. This is sometimes called the criterion of embarrassment by scholars, New Testament scholars, when they're trying to evaluate what stories in the New Testament are more likely to have actually occurred versus not so likely to have occurred. I was talking with a good friend of mine just yesterday who is a professor of classics at Florida State University. His name is Trevor Luke, or perhaps I should say Professor Luke. And Professor Luke brought up something with relation to Judas and the story of Judas in the New Testament that I had not considered before. Professor Luke talked about First, how we should not impose our own presuppositions upon the text. In other words, it's easy enough to say that the temple guards must have known what Jesus looked like, and therefore, why did they need Judas to kiss him in the garden to identify him for the temple guard to arrest? But on the other hand, maybe the temple guard wasn't around when Jesus was there in Jerusalem the week before his crucifixion. It's a big town. There's a lot of people there, especially at Passover. And once we take that supposition out of the picture that the temple guard should have been able to identify Jesus, if we get rid of that and say, no, it's quite as likely that they could not identify Jesus and they wouldn't be able to pick him out of a lineup, 
then it makes the story in the Gospels of Judas having to kiss Jesus completely understandable. What Professor Luke added to this that I had not considered before was that Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. There is a physical touching that is done in order to identify Jesus as the one who should be arrested. Judas could presumably have just stood back with the guard and pointed out Jesus or described him or said, hey, he's that guy over there. But no, Judas comes up to Jesus and personally greets him and kisses him in order to identify him. Now, what Professor Luke said was that this was a very interesting story because it serves in some ways as a counterpoint to the identification of Judas by Jesus at the Last Supper, which occurs shortly before the incident in the garden there in the upper room. And Jesus announces to all of his apostles who are present that there is one there who will betray him. And Jesus identifies him. And Jesus doesn't just point out Judas and says, he's the guy. Instead, Jesus says, he is the one to whom I will give a sop first. Now, a sop, as you probably know, is a piece of bread dipped in gravy, soup, or sauce. So Jesus takes the bread, dips it in whatever it is he dips it in, and then hands it directly to Judas, and presumably Judas then takes it. There is a physical act used to identify Judas from all the rest of his 12 apostles as the one who will betray Jesus. And the counterpoint to that is that later, after Judas leaves, and then the rest of them go to the garden, Judas now arrives with the temple guard, and he returns the favor. Now he identifies Jesus out of the apostles for the temple guard as the one that they are supposed to arrest. And Judas also identifies Jesus by a physical gesture. Instead of handing him a sop, he kisses Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean that any of these stories related to Judas actually happened, but it may simply show a wonderful literary creativity at work in the gospel writers themselves. And even though any of these stories may or may not be accurately related. They may be made up out of whole cloth. If you strip away the stories, the idea that there was a real person named Judas who was one of Jesus's 12 apostles who ended up betraying him is probably something that actually happened and is probably a character who actually existed. Now, there's so much we could talk about Judas. That could be a subject of an entire different podcast, but I'm going to move on now from Judas in my examination of whether he is a real person and simply go back and once again emphasize the fact for Elder Anderson that just like Elder Oaks needs to be very careful when talking about muskets in talks that he gives because they can be seen as incitements to violence. Not that Elder Oaks intended it that way necessarily. I don't think he intended it that way. But when you are a leader and when you are speaking to a group of people who is a big group of people and they have a lot of disparate interests and disparate intents and disparate levels of potential violence, you've got to be very careful with the words that you use. And just as I think that Elder Oaks went too far and was imprudent in his use of the term muskets in his speech at BYU from August of 2021, even so, I'm going to admonish Elder Anderson that he needs to be very careful when he's using the term Judas in his talks. It's not that he can't talk about Judas at all, but he has to be very careful that he's not using it in such a way as to make it something that the listeners to what he has to say could apply it to people who have left the church and are now critical of it. And I think the connection was there in his talk. I'm just saying that's something that we need to be careful of because there's a really bad historical track record with calling a group of people Judas. The next talk is given by a member of the 70 named Elder Eduardo Gavaret. It's called A Mighty Change 
of heart. And in this talk, he gives an excellent example of the passive-aggressive culture that pervades Mormonism. It's told in the context of a humorous incident that happened when he was young. In fact, when he was deacon age. And the basic part of the story is that when the speaker, Elder Gavarette, was young, he skipped church one day in order to go play soccer. But in order to skip church, he had to run in front of his church because he's going from his home to the soccer field, which takes him right in front of the church. I don't know why he can't go a block out of his way. But nevertheless, the story goes that he's going on the road in front of the church and he's running from tree to tree to hide behind them so that nobody who's at church can know that he's not going to church and that he's actually going to the soccer field to play some ball. Well, humorously, what he finds out is that his deacon's quorum advisor is not fooled, but manages to actually see him running by, or at least becomes aware of the fact that Elder Gavarette skipped deacon's quorum intentionally to go play soccer. And now his deacon's quorum advisor, whose name is Brother Felix Espinoza, has an idea as to how he can help this errant deacon to come back to church and to stop breaking the Sabbath. It's a story that we can almost guess what's going to happen if we have been members of the LDS Church for any period of time. Because what happens is not that Brother Felix Espinosa approaches this young deacon and tells him, hey, I saw you running from tree to tree. That was pretty funny. But really, you should be coming to church and you shouldn't be playing soccer on Sunday because it's the Sabbath. That would be the proactive way to approach it. But instead, that is not what Brother Felix Espinosa did. Let's play the tape on the talk and listen to Elder Gavarette tell the story himself. But that well-executed run into the field did not go unnoticed by the deacon's quorum advisor. <laughs> Brother Felix Espinosa had seen me running quickly from tree to tree, trying not to be discovered. <laughs> At the beginning of the week, Brother Espinosa came to my house and asked to speak with me. He didn't say anything about what he had seen on Sunday, nor did he ask me why I had missed my meeting. He just handed me a manual and said, I would like you to teach the priesthood class on Sunday. I have marked the lesson for you. It is not so difficult. I want you to read it, and I will come by in two days to help you with the preparation for the lesson. Having said this, he handed me the manual and left. I didn't want to teach the class. But I couldn't bring myself to tell him no. I had planned that Sunday to stay with my father again, meaning there was another important soccer game. <laughs> Brother Espinosa was a person that young people admire. He had found the restored gospel and changed his life, or in other words, his heart. When Saturday afternoon arrived, I thought, well, maybe tomorrow I will wake up sick, and I won't have to go to church. It wasn't the soccer game that worried me anymore. It was a class I had to teach, especially a lesson about the Sabbath day. Okay, stop the tape. Did you hear that last part? Because it's only at the last part that we find out that the lesson that Brother Espinosa gave to this deacon to teach was about the Sabbath day. Isn't that the way it always is? He gets him to church by giving him an assignment to teach in church, and the subject that he is assigned to teach on is the one that his quorum advisor thinks he needs help with. This story reminds me of the time, maybe 10 years ago, when I was starting to get a bit of a reputation in my ward for teaching things that were not necessarily in the manual. I felt that teaching 
The manual was a waste of everybody's time because the whole point of the manual is to make sure that nobody learns anything, but instead the script is reinforced. The script that everybody has heard a hundred times before. And so I was given an assignment in high priest group to teach a lesson. I was at an activity on a Saturday night or something at the church because I remember it was in the process of folding up the chairs and putting them away that one of the counselors in the high priest group leadership approached me and asked me to teach a lesson in an upcoming high priest group meeting. And I said, I'd be happy to. What was the lesson about? And I was told that the lesson was about teaching from the manual and why it's important to not go to outside sources. Well, this one was so transparent that even I had to laugh out loud. It struck me as strange that there would be a lesson about teaching from the manual in the manual, mainly because I had never encountered one like that before. Certainly there are teachings that are given about that in the church, but usually it's not in the manual itself. It's not a lesson in the manual. It might be in the introduction to the manual, but not in a lesson itself. So I asked what lesson number it was that I was supposed to teach. And the response floored me. The response was, well, it's not in the manual. So I had to say, so let me see if I can get this straight. You're asking me to teach a lesson in high priest group, and the lesson's supposed to be about sticking to the manual when we teach, but in doing so, you want me to give a lesson that's not in the manual. And when I put it that way, the counselor kind of had to smile because I think he saw how odd and even counterintuitive it was, but he agreed that that's what was being asked of me. And then it turned out to be nobody's idea that I teach. What I mean by that is I asked the counselor, was this your idea that I teach this lesson? Oh, no, 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 it wasn't my idea. Well, was it the high priest group leader? Was it his idea? Oh, no, 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 it wasn't his idea. Well, was it the bishop's idea? No, no. The state president's? No. Salt Lake City? (laughs) And he says, no, it's not Salt Lake City. So basically, I'm supposed to teach a, a lesson about sticking to the manual. The lesson is not in the manual. And on top of that, it was actually nobody's idea that I teach this lesson in the first place. It seemed to emerge fully formed, like some sort of spontaneous creation. Well, now, obviously, it was somebody's idea, but the counselor with whom I was speaking did not want to tell me whose idea it was because apparently the counselor thought it would reflect badly on whoever's idea it was. So I ended up giving that lesson, and I'm not going to talk about that lesson right now because maybe, just maybe, I have notes from that lesson somewhere available to me, and I'll do a podcast about that lesson in the future. I just wanted to say that this was another example that I had personally experienced, which makes me relate to this story that's told in General Conference about how it is that when members of the church think that another member of the church is getting things wrong, it's very common to give them a lesson to teach, and the lesson is supposed to teach them about the thing that they're doing wrong so they don't keep doing it wrong, and they get back on the ship. They get back on the covenant path. They get back holding the iron rod. The next talk is given by another 70 called Elder Larry S. Catcher. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's K-A-C-H-E-R. It's called Ladder of Faith. And very unfortunately, there is at least one entry in this talk to the General Conference Death March. I did an episode entirely devoted to one General Conference a few years ago, and I called it General Conference Death March because it appeared that there were no instances, at least not instances being related in General Conference talks, about people who were ill or hurt or injured in some way who were healed by the power of the priesthood. It seemed generally that people would get sick, they would die in spite of priesthood blessings. And it also seemed that the way things more and more are framed nowadays is that people get sick and die not as a chance for God to display his power through the priesthood and heal them, 
but instead they get sick and die as a test of their faith. So the faith that is being enjoined upon the members by the leaders is the faith to endure tragedies, not the faith to exercise power to avert the tragedy in the first place by the power of the priesthood to heal the person who doesn't die. We don't seem to hear a lot of those stories in general conference. Now, this is a delicate subject to broach, and I always want to preface these stories by saying, this is not funny. I'm not trying to be funny here, okay? I know it's funny, general conference, death march, but when a person has a loved one who dies, that's not funny. It's not funny for the loved one who dies. It's not funny for the family. And this first story is particularly tragic, and it's a horror story. So I'm not making fun of it, but here it is, as Elder Catcher told it in general conference. Play the tape. The year was 1977. The phone rang and the message tore our hearts apart. Carolyn and Doug Tebbs were in the process of moving to their new home after completing graduate school. The elders' quorum had come to load the moving van. Doug, making sure the path was clear before backing out, took one last look. What he could not see was his little daughter, Jenny, dart behind the truck at just the wrong moment. In an instant, their beloved Jenny was gone. Now, that is a nightmare, an absolute nightmare for something like that to happen. But my question isn't, why do bad things like this happen? And why are they related in general conference? My question is, why are things like this related in conference to the exclusion of stories about people getting healed by the power of the priesthood? Now, apparently, little Jenny was probably killed at the scene. She was probably killed instantly. So the power of the priesthood would not be very effective for her. However, let's not forget that we are told in the church, and I remember that back in the 1970s, Elder Featherstone claimed that he knew a man who by the power of the priesthood picked up his dead young son and commanded him to live, and that son opened his eyes. Now, that was back in the 1970s. That was a one-off. He unfortunately did not give any details relating it, such as the name of the man who brought his son back to life. So the story could be fact-checked. But we do have that teaching in the church that the priesthood's power is not limited by somebody dying. It's not just there for healing people. It's also there for bringing people back to life. And in the story, the entire elders quorum was present to help load the moving van, or at least as many of them as showed up to help load the moving van. There was plenty of Melchizedek priesthood power available, but either nobody thought to use it, or if it was attempted, it did not work. And so Elder Catcher does what is normally done in talks like this. He talks about the faith necessary for the parents to continue faithful to the church and also continue as a married couple. Though the pain and loss would not and could not leave completely, Carolyn and Doug had been comforted by the assurance that by staying firmly on the covenant path, their beloved Jenny would be theirs forever. Okay, and there's the double bind, right? It's not only that you have to stay faithful in spite of losing your child in a tragic accident that presumably an all-loving and all-powerful God could have avoided, could have intervened in, could have prevented. Not only do the parents have to stay faithful to the belief in such a God, but they also have to stay faithful in order to stay firmly on the covenant path in order for their little girl to be with them forever. So this is sort of having it both ways. The parents of Jenny have to stay faithful to the God who did not intervene to prevent Jenny from being backed over by her own father in order to be with Jenny after the parents die. 
Elder Catcher follows this story up with another story which definitely falls within the ambit of another entry in the General Conference Death March. This is a classic story. It's a story about a sick person. This one is a sick young person. In fact, I think it's an infant. And priesthood blessings are given. Multiple priesthood blessings are given. But nevertheless, the infant dies. Play the tape. As a young missionary serving in Tahiti, I was asked to administer to a sick infant. We laid our hands on his head and blessed him to get better. His health began to improve, but then he fell sick again. A second time we blessed him, but with the same result. A third request came. We pleaded with the Lord that his will be done. Shortly after, this little spirit returned to his heavenly home. But we were at peace. We wanted the infant to live, but the Lord had other plans. Accepting his will in place of our own is key to finding joy, no matter our circumstances. As over and over and over again, I hear these stories in General Conference that are trotted out as if they're faith-promoting stories of sick people, sick infants, sick adults getting terminally ill and receiving priesthood blessings but dying anyway. As I hear these stories trotted out again and again and again, I start to wonder how is it that anybody in this church is really expected to have any faith at all. The very definition of faith seems to have shifted. Faith is no longer a trust in God or a trust in Jesus that is somehow able to produce miraculous results. Instead, that kind of faith does not exist anymore. Instead, the faith is that after the miraculous result does not occur, after the person who is prayed for and blessed dies anyway, the faith is the ability to continue loyal to the LDS Church in spite of that fact, and ultimately in spite of the fact that the LDS Church does not seem to have any of the charismatic gifts or priesthood power that it claims to have. So these are all very sad stories, and I only bring them up to make the point, not to make fun of the people involved. I want to stress that once again. Incredibly, later on in this talk, Elder Catcher throws us this following line. Unbelief blocks our ability to see miracles, whereas a mindset of faith in the Savior unlocks the powers of heaven. This is an incredible statement from this speaker after having given both of these stories at the outset of his talk, both of these stories where children are killed, where children die, where God does not intervene, where priesthood power does not prevail. He says, unbelief blocks our ability to see miracles. Well, what miracle is it, Elder Catcher, that my unbelief is blocking my ability to see? What I see is that God did not intervene to keep a father from backing over his young daughter in your first story. And what I see is that multiple priesthood blessings did not manage to save the life of that infant in Tahiti in your second story. Is there some miracle I'm missing? I really want to know. And then he says, a mindset of faith in the Savior unlocks the powers of heaven. Well, I'm not clear what powers of heaven that faith in the Savior is supposed to unlock. I'm not seeing any of that in the stories that you're relating. It's as if you're making an argument that is actually contradicted by the stories that you have just told. Finally, we get to President Henry B. Eyring, who gives the last address in the Saturday morning session of General Conference. It's called Steady in the Storms. And really, the only thing I want to say about President Eyring's talk is that he goes to the familiar theme of King Benjamin's address to his people as recorded in the first few chapters of the Book of Mosiah in the Book of Mormon. 
Now, what happens in the Book of Mormon is that King Benjamin preaches Jesus to his people. They all cry aloud with one voice that God would have mercy on them in their sinful state. And then they immediately, immediately all experience this change of heart. They no longer have any desire to do evil, but only to do good continually. And they are immediately made sons and daughters of Jesus Christ. Now I'm doing that from memory. Let me go get my triple combination and open up my Book of Mormon and read the passage to you, which I believe is in chapter five of Mosiah. All right, here we go. Where's Mosiah? Okay, here it is. Yes, it is in chapter five. King Benjamin has been preaching to them in the previous chapters, and now we find out what happens as a result of his preaching to the crowd. By the way, the reason I knew this by heart is because I'm somewhat familiar with the subject, having written a paper about it, and it was published back in 1993, I believe it was, in the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies. This is a very important story in the Book of Mormon. It's important because it sets forth the overriding theology in the Book of Mormon, and it's also fascinating because it is a theology and a process of being born again that has been abandoned and eschewed for decades by the LDS Church. The irony, of course, being that the LDS Church, sometimes called the Mormon Church, is teaching a plan of salvation that is different from their foundational book of Scripture. And this is not the only place where this kind of teaching is given in the Book of Mormon, but it is here in the King Benjamin Address. And that is exactly what it is that Elder Eyring is going to reference. But even as he references it, he is going to mischaracterize it egregiously. So here we are, chapter 5, Mosiah, verse 2. And they all cried with one voice, saying, Yea, we believe all the words which thou hast spoken unto us. And also we know of their surety and truth because of the spirit of the Lord omnipotent, which has wrought, has wrought, it's already done, which has wrought a mighty change in us or in our hearts that we have no more disposition to do evil, but to do good continually. See, there's the language right there. And then they say they're willing to enter into a covenant with God to do his will and be obedient to his commandments in all things. And in verse seven, King Benjamin applauds them and says, because of the covenant which ye have made, past tense, which ye have made, ye shall be called the children of Christ, his sons and his daughters. For behold, this day he hath spiritually begotten you. You were born again this day through this experience. It's not something that's going to happen tomorrow or the day after. And it's not something that you have to incrementally arrive at through dent of your own efforts or spiritual maturation. It is something that happened to you in an instant Suddenly, it happened to you this day. You are already begotten, children of Christ. He has already spiritually begotten you. You have already been born again. At least that's what the Book of Mormon teaching is on the subject. Now, once again, getting back to what King Benjamin had to say in verse 7, For behold, this day he hath spiritually begotten you. For you say that your hearts are changed through faith on his name. Therefore, ye are born of him and have become his sons and his daughters." So all the people of King Benjamin called unto the Lord for mercy and were immediately that day born again. Their hearts were changed. They had no more desire to do good, excuse me, to do evil, but to do good continually. I think I got myself confused with the people of King Benjamin there for a second. My apologies. And of course, what President Eyring does is he references this talk, but he doesn't read that passage that I just read. Instead, he interprets this talk in terms of current modern correlated doctrine, which is that being born again does not happen in an instant suddenly as it does in the Book of Mormon with the people of King Benjamin. Instead, it is a process and that in order for our hearts to change, we have to plug away at it day after day 
for our entire lives. Here's how President Eyring describes it. President Eyring first talks about King Benjamin here. It has never been more important than it is now to understand how to build on that sure foundation. For me, there is no better place to look than in the last sermon of King Benjamin, also recorded in the Book of Mormon. King Benjamin's prophetic words are applicable to us in our day. Now, after having referenced King Benjamin and the story of King Benjamin's last sermon to his people and how they were born again, now he's going to talk about how it is that he believes, that Elder Eyring believes, that President Eyring believes, that we are born again. And it's very different from the way it is in the Book of Mormon. We receive that change as we make and renew covenants with God. That brings the power of Christ's atonement to allow that transformation in our hearts. We can feel it every time we partake of the sacrament, perform a temple ordinance for a departed ancestor, testify as a witness of the Savior, or care for someone in need as Christ's disciples. In those experiences, we become, over time, like a child in our capacity to love and obey. We come then to stand on the sure foundation. Our faith in Jesus Christ brings us to repentance and to keeping His commandments. We obey and we gain power to resist temptation, and we gain the promised companionship of the Holy Ghost. Our natures changed to become as a little child, obedient to God and more loving. That change will qualify us to enjoy the gifts that come through the Holy Ghost. So, yeah, there's a lot of word salad here from President Eyring, but he's going to say the same message that we've heard a million times, which is that being born again is a process, not an event. The first irony is that that is exactly not the way it is taught in the Book of Mormon. In the Book of Mormon, being born again is always an event, not a process. And yet the church that is built upon the foundation or the cornerstone of the Book of Mormon has evolved to the point where it is preaching a very different process of being born again than in their foundational scripture. And the only thing that makes it more ironic and more worthy of comment in my mind is to have President Eyring not only teaching the incremental view of being born again, which is common enough in general conference talks, but the very fact that he references King Benjamin by name in the context of his talk highlights this dichotomy, this disconnect even more in my mind. One gets the feeling that Mormon correlated doctrine exists in a realm separate and independent of the scriptures. And even though scriptures are sometimes cherry-picked to support certain aspects of Mormon doctrine, it is a remarkable phenomenon that one of the most important doctrines of salvation, i.e. how to become born again, is taught in the current LDS church in a way that would be unrecognizable to those people who are quoted as preaching the plan of salvation in the Book of Mormon itself. If it takes a really long time to be born again and it is this incremental process, it's much harder to tell that it's not happening. 
In other words, it's much harder for me to tell as a member of the LDS Church that I'm not being born again if it takes my entire life for it to happen. On the other hand, if it happened the way it's described in the Book of Mormon, it would be easy to tell that it happened because it happens in an instant, suddenly, and there's no doubt about it. It's obvious that it happened because it happens by the power of the Holy Ghost. It is a genuine, bona fide miracle. But as we have seen, miracles are in short supply today in the LDS Church. In fact, they are perhaps on the endangered species list. Well, that's about all the commentary I have of the Saturday morning session of April General Conference 2022. I've been working for a number of hours on this episode already. I am here at the studio in the underground bunker on Saturday morning, April 9th, 2022. There's still a lot of editing left to go and a lot of splicing in of sound bites into the podcast. Miles to go before I sleep. Miles to go before I sleep. I hope to have that completed either today or tomorrow and get this podcast up for your listening pleasure. I want to thank all of my listeners who have made contributions to Radio Free Mormon, whether those are one-time contributions or continuing monthly contributions and donations. Thank you so much for your support of this show. If you want to support Radio Free Mormon, please go to RadioFreeMormon.org right now, click the donate button, and make a contribution. We encourage continuing monthly donations, $5 a month, $10 a month, $20 a month, whatever you can afford. Your contributions do keep Radio Free Mormon and will keep Radio Free Mormon broadcasting behind enemy lines. It sounds to me from my voice that I'm about to lose my voice, and so it's a good time to be ending this podcast. Thanks so much for listening. That's all for now. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.